0: Listener Production.
1: A warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence against children. If you have experienced violence and need immediate or ongoing help, contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week... How forensic science failed in one of Australia's most infamous miscarriages of justice.
0: Experts in court who don't know anything, they know bugger all, but they are confident, they can present, and so they get those jurors on their side. And that's what happened in this case.
1: Formerly of the Australian Federal Police, Dr Mackenzie De La Hunty is an expert in how forensic science in Australia has changed over the years. Changes in methodology and techniques in forensics come through ongoing research and case studies. One of these cases, which Mackenzie has since analysed in intricate detail, was one which rocked not only Australia, but the world. There was one member of that search party that had been in the original
0: search party five years before who saw a jacket.
1: In 1980, at a campsite just outside Uluru, nine-week-old Azaria Chamberlain was tucked into bed by her mother, Lindy. Then, sometime within the next 16 minutes, Azaria disappears and sets off Australia's most controversial criminal case.
0: Lindy Chamberlain was a mother of three children at the time, her and her family went to uh, went on a family vacation. They wanted to go camping. They were experienced campers. They went up to Uluru. When they got there, they, just like any other family, were camping, barbecuing, sitting around a campfire, looking at the sights. There were other campers there, and, and they were all sitting around a fire or a barbecue. And Lindy went to put her two younger children, Reagan and Azaria, so Reagan was four and Azaria was nine weeks old, uh, to bed into the tent. So she left the communal area only, you know, a few metres away to her tent and placed the children to bed. She was gone for, eyewitness accounts say, you know, some between five and the maximum is for 16 minutes. Not long later, a small cry is heard. She goes to her tent and the zipper was open. They'd left it open because the zip actually was broken. And she observes Reagan lying there still and her baby girl, Lazaria has been taken. She sees a dingo running away with something in its mouth. So she panics. She She turns around to everybody and she says, does anyone have a torch? A dingo's got my baby. And that's where those famous words come from. Was it dark by then? It was dark, but she could see blood in the tent and blood just outside of the tent. That set
1: off a big search.
0: It did. So the other campers, rangers from a a nearby area, all began looking for this dingo. There was no question at that time that that's not what had happened. Um, They found some drag marks from a dingo. The trackers did find drag marks. They also found, whilst tracking the dingo, so looking at its tracks, different distances where the dingo had actually put down something, probably readjusted its grip, and then picked it back up and continued on. There was no reason to think that anything else other than what Lindy had said had happened, had actually happened.
1: Had there been any incidents with dingoes
0: in that area before There actually had, so six weeks prior, uh, it was either a four- or a six-year-old girl was actually pulled from a car by a dingo. She survived. And so as a result of that, recommendations were made to the Northern Territory government that dingoes actually should be culled in that area. And only two weeks prior to Azaria's disappearance was that recommendation
1: quashed. They said, no, we won't be doing that. So they, they grieved the loss And the search didn't find anything at the time until? Until uh, about a week later, I believe it
0: was, Azaria's booties, um, her jumpsuit and her nappy or napkin as they call it, were found. And it was very interesting because they were found by somebody who alerted the police. Uh, The police then came Uh, and inspected it before they put it back down and then took photos. So it wasn't found kind of how it naturally was, how it was left there. It was a little neater than that. So that was uh, of interest
1: during the case. I'd never heard that because all I remember that making massive news at the time. Yeah. And the fact that it had been the jumpsuit had been folded yes. and put in a crevice. So there was obviously human intervention. Yes. And that was the headline.
0: And it was what, which human though? And no one ever really stopped and thought about that. The, the guy who actually found it, his name was Wally, um, he was never even called to testify about when he found those items, when he found that jumpsuit. And so he couldn't explain that the police officer that he showed even picked up that item, looked at it then put it back down, realising its significance. So what the police were alleging was that in this very short time frame, somewhere between five and 16 minutes, when Lindy went to put Reagan and Azaria to bed, she actually also took her son Aidan with her. It's alleged that she took Azaria to the car. She slashed her throat uh, in the passenger side footwell with some nail scissors that were in the car And there was the presence of blood so much so that there was arterial spraying uh, that went up under the dashboard. And somehow in that five to 16 minutes, Lindy was able to murder her daughter in the car, then place her daughter's body into Michael's camera bag then go and put Reagan down in the tent, and then return back to the common area in, of that campground with no blood all over herself. Well, she cleaned up during that time, didn't of she? Of course, she would have. And she was able to clean up the car. And Reagan didn't say anything, and Aiden didn't say anything, and you know they were. Presenting it as this classic case of a, of a mother with post- PND, postnatal depression, who just couldn't handle that additional child. But Lindy was known to be a, a very loving mother and a very good mother to her children. So it didn't fit her character.
1: There were also suggestions that baby Azaria might have um, had cerebral palsy or some sort of birth defect.
0: And that made it hard as a parent. But when Lindy speaks of her daughter, Azaria, she just speaks like a doting mother. She just loved her and her brothers loved her.
1: And yeah, she was their baby girl. But when that jumpsuit was found folded, I remember the other theories that came out were things like Aidan had killed his little sister and the parents were covering up. There were some crazy theories,
0: I think. But Aidan having killed his sister, there... It's just a theory. There there was no evidence to suggest that, um, which was, it's just
1: insane (laughs) where all of the ideas came from. Well, what was the evidence, flimsy or otherwise, that was used to help the prosecution's story that she'd murdered, uh, Lindy had murdered Azaria, the theory that she had murdered Azaria in the car?
0: There was a few key things, so... One of them was the jumpsuit. When asked what the baby was wearing, uh, she said she was wearing a jumpsuit, booties, a nappy and a matinee jacket because it was cold in the desert at night.
1: It was August. It was winter in Australia.
0: Exactly. And and it gets cold in the desert. So she had a jacket on. And when the jumpsuit was found, no jacket was found near that, the crown really hung on to the fact that there was no... uh, canine saliva found on the jumpsuit. Now, Lindy always maintained that's because she was wearing, also wearing a jacket, but the fact, the absence of that saliva, was one of the things that the crown really relied upon. Uh, Now that the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence or the other way around, however it goes. The fact that something is not there does not mean that something didn't happen. If, you know, someone broke into this studio where we're sitting and there's no fingerprints on the door, does that mean that they didn't do it? So, you know, looking at it that way, the jumpsuit in itself, not having dog saliva on it, that's one thing. But Lindy had an explanation for that. On the jumpsuit, they, the first expert for the Crown to actually look at the jumpsuit said that there was cat hairs found on the jumpsuit. So not canine or dog hairs or dingo hairs specifically, which is really interesting because I'm not sure if they had a cat or not, but it's not the dog hairs that you would expect to be on there. The other thing that was quite interesting is that the jumpsuit itself had some damage to it, as you would expect if a dingo had attacked a baby or taken a baby wearing a jumpsuit. Now, the Crown alleged that the cuts and the damage to the jumpsuit is actually a result of scissors. And within their car, there was a pair of nail scissors. Now, nail scissors, although they might be able to use, you know, be used to cut a neck, they probably, it'd be pretty hard um, to do the damage scene on the jumpsuit with some nail scissors, especially in the time frame that was given, but when Lindy had l- disappeared from them, the communal area of the campsite. Um, but the the damage to the jumpsuit is is very interesting. So the crown, their expert witness did one test, just one uh, with a jumpsuit of that same terry toweling material with a kid goat in it, dead kid goat, and some dingoes at Adelaide Zoo. And they said that the damage to the jumpsuit was completely different to what they saw with Azaria's jumpsuit. Now, that's from one repetition of of an experiment. You can't do one test uh, in forensics and say, yep, it's exactly that. You need to consider a whole range of possibilities and have replicates. And they didn't have anything like that. They based their case on this one test that was done um, and said, yep, it was definitely cut by scissors which absolutely was not the case. Did they actually try to cut a jumpsuit They with nail scissors? They did indeed, um, and, and they were really straight cuts. Of course, with that terry-toweling material, you do see some kind of pulling at the edges if there's tension kind of on, on that material, but the subsequent tests that were done with dingoes actually showed in exactly the same type of damage In terms of the jumpsuit, was there blood on it? Yeah, there was absolutely blood on it, focused around the neckline. I had the pleasure of seeing the jumpsuit um, in her personal collection in in Canberra. And it looks like, you know, it's been, I don't know, mouthed by a dog. Uh, But yes, there is dark brown staining around the top. Um, The jumpsuit is also a little bit dirty. Obviously, you can imagine uh, if it's dragged through the dirt it's going to get a little bit dirty the textile damage expert actually really stepped outside of his area of expertise and 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 even you know into the realms of imagination and said that he also observed a small adult handprint in blood on the jumpsuit which wasn't able to be found by anybody else.
1: another question that the jumpsuit raised um, in terms of if he concluded that there was neck damage to Azaria, and that's where the preponderance of blood was. There was. So there was no abdominal or lower below the neck blood distribution. And I remember then a big theory um, coming out that if a dog took a baby, it would grab it at the centre, not from the head and neck. And again, that was deemed as proof that a dingo did not take. It's just an indication, right? It's not
0: It's not proof of anything. The other thing that needs to be considered is that um, because it was cold, she was wearing a bulky jacket. And so the skin that was, you know, open to the air would have been that neck and head region. And that's where she smelled good. You know, she was the next meal perhaps. And that's what the dog is going for. They're not going for the, the sweet smell of baby that mothers love, you know, that's on their clothes and their bellies. It's going for what it can smell as food. And, and that's that head and neck
1: region. I do remember people who were initially sympathetic to Lindy saying, oh no, that that sealed it, that a dog would never take a child from the neck they, or the head. They would always try and grasp from the centre to try and get a balanced load, if you like, yeah. of whatever they were carrying.
0: Which makes sense as to why the trackers actually observed the dingo's tracks to stop as if it was putting something down and readjusting and then continuing to move on uh, because it had maybe, you know, that uneven load as it... As it um, carried the baby from neck up.
1: Given that initially the search involved rangers and Indigenous trackers, were any of those people called to testify in court? Incredibly,
0: at the time, Indigenous trackers were not considered experts and so not one was actually called during uh, the trial, which is absolutely insane they could have testified as to oh just so many so many things to do with that dingo having taken something at one location walked put it down taken walked and so on and so forth the crown actually proposed that The 100 metres or so of drag marks that were observed were a red herring placed there by Lindy or Michael. You know, when it was mentioned during the case that there were drag marks, uh, although it wasn't by one of the trackers, it it was by somebody else, the Crown said this was a red herring. It was was placed there to, you know, lead us on a bit of a wild
1: goose chase. So tell me about the car, the blood in the car, because you assume if there's an arterial puncture, cut and spurting, which is what they were saying, arterial spurt. That's pretty aggressive spurting. What did they find in the car?
0: Incredibly. It was said that there was this arterial spray up onto the um, dashboard on the passenger seat side and so that's where they got the idea that uh, Azaria had been killed in that passenger side footwell. Some time later, uh, as, as part of one of the attempts to get new evidence so that an appeal could be lodged. Someone went around and and looked at a bunch of Taranas, that was the the brand of car, and found that 10% of Taranas that were examined in this way actually had that same spray pattern. So what it actually was, was that when the car was manufactured, uh, underneath the car, in the tyre wells of the car, they actually spray this sand and bituminous compound, which is like kind of sound deadening, so it quietens the sound of the road down a little bit. And at a particular angle with that spray gun, it would actually travel up through a hole underneath the car and could spray under the dash. And that's what the pattern was. Now, that sand and bituminous sound deadening compound actually reacted with one of the tests that was done for fetal haemoglobin. So fetal haemoglobin is a particular thing that's found in baby's blood. It's there until they're about six to nine months old. Something that we can use to see whether it's baby's blood or an adult's blood or older than, you know, six or nine months. And a New South Wales lab technician at the time said that, you know, she'd taken these samples of this arterial blood spray from under
1: the car, and and it was positive for fetal haemoglobin. Did that substance that the car company used contain iron? What were they looking for?
0: Interestingly, I think it contained possibly iron and copper oxide that was also testing positive, but later... um, Because there's
1: iron in haemoglobin.
0: Yeah, yeah. In blood, in human blood. Well, you'd imagine in a car, in a metal car, you've got some iron somewhere, right? even when the lab technician was testing these samples of blood or apparent blood, uh, she did note that there was sediment in the bottom of her samples, which is the sand, (laughs) from the sound deadening compound. And and later in the case, there was information that came from the company that produced the antiserum that's used to detect haemoglobin or fetal haemoglobin, saying that uh, it it cannot be used for this purpose. The antiserum that's used is not even a product that's in their catalogue because it's used for very specific circumstances and and only, um, yeah, you have to be able to request it. So there's no SOP standard operating procedure for the detection of fetal hemoglobin using this particular compound. That doesn't exist. It was interesting that it was used and then that evidence was relied upon.
1: In terms of testing then, I mean, we're talking about 1980 who could set themselves up as a forensic expert to detect fetal hemoglobin
0: that's one of the things that we've gained from this case now in order to be able to use a detection technique or a development technique in forensic science it needs to be able to be validated peer reviewed and there needs to be evidence shown that that technique actually works uh, and works a very high percentage of the time the other thing is is when experts are giving you know their their opinions on matters, they need to know the limitations of their um, the processes that they're undertaking. You know, that, that lab technician should have said, look, I undertook this process, that's what I've learnt at work, but, you know, it works this percentage of the time or or provided some sort some sort of additional information on the efficacy of that test. Based on that evidence, what happened to Lindy Chamberlain? She was convicted and put into prison. And then she had her next daughter in prison. She was allowed to hold her for one hour before she was taken away from her. An appeal was then uh, put in to try and get Lindy out of prison so that she could care for her daughter, and that was granted. Uh, And so Lindy was able to
1: feed uh, and look after her for five months. What event then occurred that made people re-examine the case?
0: So there were a number of appeals after she went to prison but the way that our legal system was at the time an appeal could only be granted if there was new evidence and so things like finding that that sound deadening spray under other Tiranas wasn't considered new evidence because it was or it, it was available at the time of the trial. Anything new really had to be found. It, you weren't really at the time allowed to pick apart things that had already been presented and say, well, that expert said it was cat hairs, but it was actually dog hairs. That's not new evidence. The hairs were always there, and the defence would have had an opportunity to have their own experts observe um, those hairs, but they didn't. The new evidence that eventually came to light uh, that sparked the ability for an, another inquest was that four or five years later, a tourist from the UK who was obsessed with the Chamberlain case flew to Australia and, and visited Uluru. And when that man was there, he was climbing the rock, and he actually fell off the rock and he died, unfortunately. Now, when it was found that he was missing, they obviously sent out a search party and they found his body. And there was one member of that search party that had been in the original search party for Azaria Chamberlain five years before, who saw a jacket. And amazingly, this person, realising the significance of this, then uh, alerted the police. The police came out, they took the jacket, and it sat there for four days. And they said nothing, nothing. Interestingly, uh, it had been leaked to a member of the media that this jacket had been found, and that member of the media, or this journalist, called Lindy's lawyer to let him know. So the police didn't advise Lindy. Um, it kind of she found out about it this backwards way, and, and the journalist wanted to make sure that Lindy was able to have her own expert look at that jacket. That's one of the biggest things in this case. You know, the expert witnesses were acting for the crown. And it shows you the importance of maybe that contextual bias that can happen with experts. If they're briefed on a case, you know, if they're told by investigators, we know that this has happened, here's the evidence, please look at it. You're going to see what they want you to see. Uh, And that's, you know, it's a
1: really hard thing to do as an expert is to remain objective. Was their DNA tested if, perchance, Lindy's fingerprints were found on the jacket? That would be totally expected. It absolutely would be.
0: We can't actually find fingerprints on textiles too easily, especially those um, aged textiles like that, ones that have been exposed to uh, the environment. Um, but, yeah, if Lindy's DNA was on that jacket, absolutely, it should have been, you know, she was the mother dressing her baby. If any one of that family's DNA was found on that jacket, it, it should be there. Contextually, that's it doesn't make sense that it wouldn't be. Because
1: DNA can't tell you when it was put there.
0: Exactly. Same with fingerprints. We can't date these things, and especially when um, you know an an important evidence item is out in the in the wilderness or in you know out in the environment for five years. You know, think about the the heat exposure, the the uh, moisture, any m- microbial or bacterial action that then would have happened as a result of having blood on the door, having then dog saliva put on top of that. All of those things tend to weather away.
1: I've never understood why a jacket was found separate from the jumpsuit. How on earth could the jacket have been removed? There's also that question of how was
0: the baby removed from the jumpsuit because all of the push buttons up the jumpsuit weren't undone. I think there was only a couple of buttons that were actually undone. We've all seen dogs attack a chew toy, right? Uh, And the things that they can do with them are pretty impressive. (laughs) So being able to take a baby out of a jacket is nowhere outside of the realms of possibility
1: um, for a wild animal. After this new coronial inquest, what was concluded?
0: After the new evidence of the matinee jacket was brought forward and We've observed it, and Lindy wasn't lying that the baby was in a jacket. There was a Royal Commission, uh, which is an inquiry that's independent of any state or federal government. So it's it's a very objective uh, kind of investigation. Um, and essentially, that led to the pardoning of Lindy Chamberlain. So pardoning is not actually removing those charges from the public record. It is a pardon. I think initially she was offered um, the opportunity to plead guilty, but then they wouldn't uh, continue her prison sentence, which she said no to. When she was pardoned, she also refuted that. Uh, She didn't want to be pardoned. She needed the charges and any of this removed from the public record. She had done nothing
1: wrong. And so she continued to fight. So she still had a conviction to her name. She still did. As a child killer. Yeah,
0: The next kind of win for her was in 95. So this is during the third inquest. Uh, She got a not guilty uh, verdict, obviously. Um, But the cause of death on Azaria's certificate still did not say that it was a dingo. And she wanted that to be changed. So then in 2012, and that was the final part of this, uh, her death certificate was changed to reflect what had actually happened. So it took, you know, 32 years for Lindy to be properly exonerated and for the cause of death of Azaria Chamberlain to be noted correctly.
1: It's interesting to me that she fought so hard to have that death certificate changed because after the Royal Commission, the death certificate said cause and manner of death unknown.
0: And she wanted it to be properly reflected in, in that public record that she was taken by a dingo and killed like that, which I think is absolutely reasonable given what they had been through. You know, that shaped their entire lives. They divorced. They divorced. Um, you know, they're both remarried and then yeah, Michael uh passed away in
1: 2017, which is only 5 years after it was finally concluded.
0: And Michael spent so much time helping Lindy, you know, appeal and gather new evidence and and fight these uh these charges and and
1: also deal with that court of public opinion. Financially, that would have been horrific for them. Yeah, their
0: legal fees were huge. Uh, They did get some compensation, but I don't believe that that compensation from the Northern Territory government, I don't believe that it even covered their legal fees.
1: So it was not something they profited from?
0: They did not. They were criticised later in their lives because they chose to only do paid interviews. But by that point, they'd been so financially ruined by everything that had happened with the legal fees that it was entirely fair that they would only do paid interviews.
1: Because people were profiting from their story.
0: Correct. And also it meant that they could have a media manager that could help kind of vet out some of the more nefarious journalists who wanted to, you know, bring it all back up again and and really work with people who would help tell their story. Did they
1: get their daughter back? No, the body of Azaria was never recovered. What are the actual changes that this case has brought about? Obviously socially... There are issues, um, I remember on what was formerly known as Fraser Island, now Gurry, there's a collection of dingoes, and every time there's a dingo thing, people raise their antennae.
0: Yeah, there's um, every time there is a dingo attack now, obviously... Uh, everyone goes, oh gosh, because there's that that public sentiment of we messed up, we messed up in what we believed, and dingoes have been attacking ever since, and and had been attacking before Azaria went missing. Um, but there's some really interesting changes that have happened uh, for expert witnesses. So in Australia, we have something called the Evidence Act. Um, And within that act, in in a particular section called Section 79, it talks about who is considered an actual expert. And it's cases like the Chamberlain case and other cases like Makita and Sprouse. And there's a few of them that have led to legislation that actually talks about how you are considered an expert. And it is you need to have specialised knowledge that's based on study, training or experience then the second part to that is if you're offering an expert opinion, your expert opinion needs to be wholly based or substantially based on that specialised knowledge from the study training and experience. So it starts to get a bit explicit about who can actually present evidence in court as an expert. And it's got experts these days being very careful to stay within the realms of their own expertise. So if a forensic odontologist so with teeth is providing expert evidence in a court uh, about teeth marks on a person, let's say, they then cannot provide opinion on, let's say, fingerprint evidence. They need to stay within the realms of their own expertise. And it's cases like this that really help us adjust our legislation to make sure that we're getting the best from our experts in court. In the Chamberlain case, you know, we had textile damage experts um, commenting on other parts of the case that had nothing to do with textile damage. And it's those opinions that start to influence juries and actually make it really difficult. We get experts in court who don't know anything, they know bugger all, but they are confident, they can present and so they get those jurors on their side uh, and that's what happened in this case. The defence was using um, an, a professor, um, an academic professor who very much knew his stuff but he was seen to be, um, you know, cutting off people when they were speaking to him, a bit cold, he used scientific jargon and so the jury members didn't understand him And so they didn't listen to him. They listened to the flamboyant, friendly... Entertaining. Exactly. And engaging. And so we need to remember that within judicial proceedings, we've got these characters who are built to tell stories and built to get people on their side. That's how they are. But that's not what the science is about. And it's the science that we need to get out in the courtroom. Forensic science as a profession has learned wonderfully from this case, and legislation has been changed to reflect the importance of um, expert opinion being a valid and and important part of a case, but also the boundaries in which that needs to sit. The thing that makes experts experts is being able to consider all of those facts and their experiences and that study and that training and then. Look at a different set of information, so something that's unknown, that's our case, and then be able to to do interpretations, you know, to interpret those case details, to interpret the evidence that you found. It's that interpretation that is the expert opinion. It is not a fact, but they're basing their interpretation on all of these facts, you know, given all of this information, I believe this is what I'm seeing or I, I have matched these two fingerprints together. There's no one million percent way to say, yes, exactly, this fingerprint matches this one, but we can do it so close to that, that that's your expert.
1: You can talk in likelihoods.
0: Exactly. Likelihood ratios are really hard for juries because they're big numbers um, and they're kind of unfathomable. So really good experts are actually uh, excellent communicators and they can really break it down. You know, explain a drop of water in an ocean as, as your statistics, as opposed to giving you two numbers that don't really mean anything to you.
1: And the less mathematically and scientifically literate juries are now the more challenges are presented to forensics experts.
0: Absolutely. But the forensics experts also need to adapt to juries. Part of being a forensics expert is being able to communicate your science. So not using scientific jargon, ensuring that you are looking at the jury, explaining things to them, providing metaphors or anecdotes to help get their understanding because the role of a forensic scientist is not to sit in a laboratory, it's it's to... Um, your your duty is to the court and your duty is to help the court understand what you have found and what that means.
1: Do you think moving forward, I mean, Lindy Chamberlain has done the science community a great service in one respect. Yes. Do you think moving forward, Lindy forgives? Lindy
0: is super forgiving uh, of people that don't understand the case. Um, or think that she still did it. She's really understanding of that. And I don't know whether that comes from her religious background or she's, I think she's just a really lovely person who wants the world to learn from this massive
1: miscarriage of justice. Well, hopefully today we'll have at least made those people who were desperately in favour of convicting her and calling for the death penalty for a woman who kills her baby To actually think again and maybe not be so judgmental next time. Absolutely. Mackenzie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.